Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, shall we make a start? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Charles Draper. I'm a chairman of the William Herschel Society. Um, I'll say a bit about society uh, in a moment, but first, um, can you re- please read the guidance about uh, health and safety and fire risk and so on? No fire alarms expected, so if alarms should sound, please evacuate by nearest fire exit. <clears throat> and uh, the best one, an exit here and one at the back, and a member of staff will gu- guide you to emergency assembly point on the grass between 8 West Building across the walk and 10 West. And toilet facilities, if you need them, are across the way. And you are being recorded. OK. Um, so um, the Willem Herschel Society, uh, it was founded uh, uh, in the 70s, essentially, um, to rescue um, the house in New King Street where William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus back in 1781. And after a major effort by Patrick Moore and others, um, uh, and uh, that established the Herschel Museum. And uh, since then, of course, there have been lectures uh, organized by the society ever since then, and observing groups which have waxed and waned, and they're currently waxing at the moment under the leadership of uh, Simon Holbeach here. Um, uh, but we also organize other things about, about the Herschels, um, uh, things about you know, Herschel the musician. And over this past year, there have been a series of concerts and Jubilati series, which have been done in cooperation with the Bath Preservation Trust and, uh, and the University of Bath Spa, and even a dance performance, Lena, uh, based on the, why, on the lives of William and Caroline Herschel. So all things Herschel is what we do, essentially. Um, mostly we have our lectures um, down in Brilsey, a very convenient spot, but once a year we're delighted to come up to the university and, and have um, our lecture here. And that's why we're here tonight. I'm delighted that we have um, Dr. Marek Kukula, who's the uh, public um, astronomer at the Royal Observatory, Greenwich. Um, Marek was um, at his first degree in physics with astrophysics and his PhD at the University of Manchester, and then went on to Liverpool John Moores University, Edinburgh, uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. Um, and his main research interests are in active galactic nuclei and large galaxies and their central black holes and how they evolve. So please welcome Dr. Marek Kukula. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, thank you also to the William Herschel Society and to the University of Bath for inviting me this evening. It's always great to have uh, an excuse to, have, to come to Bath, of course, a town that has a, a great long history and connection with astronomy. What I really like about the story of William Herschel and his sister Caroline doing their astronomical work here is that you see astronomy as part of the wider culture. They were, of course, musicians before they got into astronomy. And here in Bath, you could see how astronomy and science was just part of that great mix of ideas, art, humanities, and science, all all mixing and interacting. And I think that's really the way we should be moving um, in the 21st century to bring all of those disciplines back together. Um, Now, uh, you've heard a little bit about my research area. When I was an active researcher, I was studying very, very distant galaxies. My job now uh, at Greenwich is slightly different. Greenwich, a little bit like Bath, is one of these places where science and art and the humanities are all mixed up together, some beautiful architecture, 
Here is the Royal Observatory. Um, it's, uh, the original building is designed, was designed by Sir Christopher Wren, um, more famous perhaps for St Paul's Cathedral, which I think you can just see over in the distance here. Um, Wren, of course, was an astronomer before he was an architect. So again, just illustrating this, um, this thread that science and the humanities are not as separate uh, as we like to think they are. But Greenwich founded in the 17th century to use astronomy for very practical purposes. This building was not designed so that the astronomers could explore the universe and try to understand how it works and our place in the cosmos. I'm sure they were all fascinated by those questions. That is not why Charles II built the observatory and paid them to work there. They were paid to map the heavens and to track the uh, motions of the moon and the other heavenly bodies so that they could be used to draw up navigational tables to improve navigation at sea because that was economically and militarily important for Britain. So it was using astronomy for a very practical purpose. They did crack the navigational problems. Um, actually, they, they cracked it. It took them 100 years, but it was the astronomer Royal Neville Maskelyne uh, who uh, finally brought that um, to fruition, and Maskelyne uh, was great friends with the Herschels. In fact, we still have uh, some of Herschel's telescopes uh, on display at the observatory in Greenwich. So it's only really in the 19th century that astronomy starts becoming what we think of it today, which is this quest to understand the universe for its own sake. Before that, it had very practical purposes, um, and in fact, the legacy of that we still use today because, of course, the prime meridian, zero degrees longitude, passes through the observatory in Greenwich, and that also is the basis for Greenwich Mean Time and the world's time zone systems. So although we don't measure longitude according to the sun at Greenwich and we don't measure time according to the sun at Greenwich anymore, we have satellite systems, we have atomic clocks, those modern systems are basically set to give you the answer you would get if you stood in Greenwich. And that is the legacy of the very practical astronomy work that was done there um, over hundreds and hundreds of years. And my job, really, we're now a museum and science centre, is to bring these stories to the public. So although my research was in distant galaxies, now I'm expected to know about everything from Mars exploration to alien life, supernova explosions and the Big Bang. So it keeps me rather busy. However, when we think about astronomy, Today, I think this is more what we think about. This is a wonderful photo from our Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition. Uh, I think Stephen Christensen um, from the United States took this. And I think this, this photo really sums up why people get excited about astronomy and perhaps why they get excited about science in general. Here are the two tiny human figures and a little pool of, of light down at the bottom and around them is this amazing world still shrouded in darkness with the, the majesty of the heavens above them. And I like to think this photo is kind of a metaphor for the scientific endeavor. Here we are in this tiny little circle of light and the whole purpose of science is to expand that circle and look how much there still is to explore and to understand. Um, we've learned a lot over the last few thousand years but hopefully there's still a lot more to keep us occupied for many, many centuries to come. I, for one, would be very upset if in my lifetime we discovered everything there was to learn about the way the universe works. I hope we never, ever do. That's part of the fun. 
But it is that exploration and that mystery. And we live in a really, really exciting time to be an astronomer. I think a really exciting time to be alive because within our lifetimes, we have learned so much about the universe around us. We've answered questions that people have been posing for thousands of years, uh, and we've discovered new questions that we hadn't even thought of before. And here are just some examples of the things that we've learned. Lovely Hubble Space Telescope shot of star clouds. This is a very famous spacecraft. This is the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission, something that we can all be very proud of if you're a UK taxpayer, because Britain, um, in spite of Brexit, we are still firm members of the European Space Agency. There's uh, no uh, indication that that is going to change. It's a completely separate organisation from the European Union. So we're set to stay in ESA, and we are a big player in ESA, and British scientists were major players in the Rosetta mission. This was a mission sent to study a comet, to chase the comet and catch up with it, and it sent back spectacular images of this four-kilometre-wide lump of ice and rock, showing us things we had never seen before. Uh, here is the comet. It seems to be actually two lumps of ice kind of stuck together. Here is the neck region, these enormous kilometre-high cliffs with these boulders at the bottom. Um, really strange landscapes like nothing we'd ever seen before, these precipitous um, mountain peaks, these sort of scree slopes. These boulders are about the size of sort of, I guess, the size of a, of a, of a big building, a big house or a, a church, something like that, with these dust slopes. Landscapes like nothing human beings had ever seen before. Another amazing mission, this time a NASA mission, an American mission, the New Horizons spacecraft sent uh, left Earth in 2005 to explore um, the last unexplored planet of the solar system, Pluto. And a year into its mission, they had to change the billing because Pluto, its classification was changed from a planet to a dwarf planet. So it became one of the first spacecraft to visit a dwarf planet instead. Even though this was a NASA mission, it still had massive international involvement. Uh, and in fact, many of the uh, cameras on board New Horizons were made here in the UK. Uh, and many of the scientists working on the mission were also uh, UK scientists, so something else we all can be proud of. And these were the pictures from 2015 um, that New Horizons sent back. It was one of the furthest and fastest missions ever, ever sent out. Traveled, traveled very, very fast. It had to travel fast to get to Pluto in any reasonable time. But that meant when it got to Pluto, a world smaller than our moon, it was traveling so fast that it couldn't stop. And so it had 24 hours to do all of the, all of the science after a 10-year journey. Um, and if anything had gone wrong, all of that, that journey, all of that building of the spacecraft would have been a complete waste of time. And it couldn't be controlled in real time because at that distance it took several hours for radio signals at the speed of light to travel from the Earth to New Horizons. So it had to be pre-programmed to do all of its uh, scientific um, analyses, all of its, take all of its photos, travelling faster than a bullet as it whizzed past Pluto in 24 hours. And if it had got anything wrong, if the cameras had been slightly at the wrong angle, everything would have been blurred, everything would have been ruined. Of course, it all worked absolutely perfectly. So a tribute not just to the hundreds of scientists who worked on that mission, but also to the hundreds of engineers and uh, software engineers who also worked on the mission. These are international, these are collaborative. I think these show humanity at its best, all of us working together to achieve something 
absolutely remarkable and to pull it off absolutely spot on absolutely first time and here are some of the images sent back um, this astonishing view taken as new horizons flew past pluto and turned its camera back looking back towards the sun not a view we could ever get from earth because of course pluto never comes between the earth and the sun and here we see these amazing kilometer high mountains of ice backlit this uh, sea or a glacier of frozen nitrogen over here. Tremendous variety of terrain here, really jagged and lumpy, really flat and smooth, showing us that Pluto is still an active world, even though it's very, very small and very, very far from the sun and very, very cold. Somehow there is a source of energy to provide all of this geological activity. We don't understand um, what's going on on Pluto. It's certainly a lot more interesting than we had any right to expect it to be. And another reminder, I think, from the universe um, that uh, the universe is always more interesting than we, uh, we give it credit for. So again, we're not going to be bored anytime soon. Here's a full color photo looking down on those mountains of ice and onto that sea of frozen nitrogen. Uh, and this orange deposit, some kind of organic chemical. Again, we don't really understand quite what it is, but lots of scientists are uh, working on this right now, trying to understand where this chemistry comes from so far from the sun uh, with so little energy to power it. Really fascinating stuff. Another really exciting mission of recent years. Um, this is an artist's impression of NASA's Curiosity rover being landed on the surface of the red planet by Sky Crane. Um, the rover is the size of a Jeep, so it's really heavy, even though um, Mars has only one-third the gravity of Earth. Uh, you couldn't land it using parachutes because Mars's atmosphere is too thin. They would not be able to slow the lander down enough. So it had to use this sky crane and hover and lower the lander on nylon ropes. I didn't think it was going to work. Uh, and afterwards, I met one of the NASA engineers, and I said to them, I owe you a drink, because I really didn't think it was going to work. And he said, yeah, well, you know, we thought it had a 50-50 chance. <laughs> but it did work, um, and I think we'll see more of these uh, systems in future. Curiosity has now been on the surface for five years. Here it is. This, I think, is one of the best selfies ever taken. Uh, the rover has many cameras, one of them on this arm here, one of them is on this arm here, and it's looking back and showing you the rover. Uh, and look at this, we've made tire tracks on another world, we've dug holes in the soil of another world, and Curiosity, of course, is there to study the geology of Mars and to try and figure out whether it may once have been a hospitable environment for life, and the indications seem to be that it probably was, and the next tranche of missions over the next couple of years are going to more explicitly see whether it, they can find signs that perhaps life once existed on Mars, or perhaps even still does exist in the form of microbes. And Curiosity has allowed us to see another world as if we were standing there ourselves. For thousands of years, Mars was a tiny red dot in the sky. For the last 400 years, we've been able to look at it through telescopes and see it as a little round disk and actually to start to see surface features. Now we are the first generation in human history to see Mars as a place and to imagine what it might be like to stand on the surface and actually be able to see what it would be like to stand on the surface. This could be the Sahara Desert, but it isn't. It's Gale Crater and Mount Sharp on another planet. And just earlier this week, this was in the news. Um, this is, I'll try to pronounce it, I think it's Oumuamua, um, a four-kilometer-long asteroid that was detected whizzing through our solar system. It doesn't belong here. It comes from outside. It formed around another star. Uh, these things have been whizzing past the sun uh, for the whole of, of the history of the solar system for the first time ever. We've kind of caught a glimpse. This is an artist's impression. But we do know it's about four kilometers long, and it's highly elongated. Um, really uh, long, thin, and narrow. Very, very strange object. 
Uh, but this, like Pluto, is coated with organic compounds. Really, really strange. Uh, and we're just learning about these objects now. So space is full of really exciting things. And again, another thing that we can be very proud of in Britain, uh, this is our first European Space Agency astronaut, Tim Peake, who uh, went up uh, and came back down again last year and is going to go up again. Uh, and Tim did amazing things. And I think one of the most amazing things he did was he really inspired and galvanised a new generation of British school kids, girls and boys, to get excited about the possibilities of space. Um, thousands and thousands of kids all around the country got involved in his mission, uh, and he did all sorts of experiments and live broadcasts. And here, um, sign of the times, this is Tim tweeting from the International Space Station. Today's exhilarating spacewalk will be etched in my memory forever. Quite an incredible feeling. And the great thing is, it's also going to be etched into the memory of a generation of British school children as well. So all sorts of really exciting things happening. But the question I want to answer in this talk is, what on earth has that got to do with our daily lives down here on Earth? We can all agree that space is really exciting. All of those things that we're learning about, what, what has that got to do with daily lives? Is this just a luxury that we're paying astronomers to find out these things for fun? Or is there some purpose, like the astronomers in Greenwich 350 years ago, where they're actually doing it because there's a practical reason? And hopefully I'm going to convince you that there are many, many practical reasons why learning this stuff is not just fun, but it actually is really important and tells us something really important about our everyday lives. Well, here is an aspect of everyday life. I was walking up from the train station in Bath today and uh, the heavens opened. Weather is something we're very familiar with in this country. This, um, I think, the Storm Desmond from a couple of years ago, waves crashing uh, onto the coast of uh, Western Scotland. And here is the same storm seen from space. I think you can just about see um, Britain and Ireland down here, but most of Scotland <coughs> covered by cloud. The weather is something we have to deal with every day. We check the weather forecast. It depend, it, you know, depending on that, we decide what to wear. It, uh, it, it decides whether or not we're going to be cold or hot or all of these things. It's just something, an aspect of our everyday lives that we have to live with. Um, what causes the weather? Well, I raided the internet, and uh, here's a lovely diagram showing you where the wind comes from. So um, different parts of the Earth's surface are heated by different amounts. Uh, warm areas, the warm air rises and cold air flows across the surface to replace it and that flow of air is the wind that's where the wind comes from where does the rain come from another image nicked from the internet um, of course we all know this we learn it in school water evaporates from the sea it condenses into clouds and then it rains out over the land that's where the rain comes from what is the common factor in those two processes um, well of course it's that it's the it's the sun the sun provides the energy that powers our weather on short term and powers our climate on the long term. Without the sun, without energy from the sun, the Earth's atmosphere would be dead and cold and inert. There would be no wind, there would be no rain, there would be no clouds, there would be no motion in the atmosphere. It is the sun that powers the weather. That's where it comes from. So all of our weather, all of the energy in the weather comes from a star 150 million kilometers away. And let's look at it in close-up. Of course, you should never look directly at the sun. You should never, ever look at the sun through any kind of magnifying uh, optical instrument, even the viewfinder of your camera, um, unless you have uh, some professional filters in there to block out most of the light. The sun gives off huge amounts of energy, and even 150 million kilometers away, uh, if you focus that energy onto your retina, it will damage your eye and blind you. However, 
with specially designed telescopes and with filters, we can look at the sun safely. And here is a fantastic image showing you beyond the dazzle of light and heat that our eyes pick up, there's a lot going on. The sun is a very violent place, an enormous sphere of roiling, superheated gas. You can see um, active regions where stuff is really uh, getting going. You can see gas bursting off the surface. Uh, just to give you a sense of scale, if we could move the Earth from 150 million kilometers away to just a, a few hundred uh, thousand kilometers away, that's the size the Earth would be. So you can see the Earth is tiny compared to the Sun. And here are some close-ups from uh, various NASA observatories. Uh, amazing uh, arches of gas bursting off the surface, uh, explosions uh, taking place on the surface, enormous amounts of energy coming off. Uh, and you can see that the sun's magnetic field plays a huge role as well, gas looping around on these magnetic field lines. Uh, a completely dynamic place, um, bursting and roiling with activity all the time. Let's zoom in on the surface. These are sunspots. These are areas of the surface which are slightly cooler than their surroundings, and so they look darker compared to the dazzling brightness of the surroundings. When I say slightly cooler, they're about 3,500 degrees uh, centigrade. So if you just isolated the sunspot, it would still be dazzlingly bright. It's just that the surrounding surface is about 5,500 degrees. Um, these are about the size of the Earth, and you can see the surface is sort of stippled with these cell-like structures. Uh, each of these is a, a bubble of superheated gas the size of Europe rising up from the depths of the sun and bringing with it energy from deep down. So we have to go deep inside the sun to find out where that energy comes from. So let's go down beneath the surface. This is what we think is going on inside of the sun. We can use observations. We can use our knowledge of physics to work out exactly what the conditions are like uh, and figure out the physics that's going on to liberate energy in the center. And we think that the energy is being generated right down in the very central regions of the sun, where temperatures are millions of degrees and pressures are unlike anything we can experience here on the Earth. And this is what's happening in the center of the sun, a process called nuclear fusion. We have a lot of hydrogen around. The sun is made mostly of hydrogen. And uh, in the center of the sun, hydrogen nuclei, uh, these little positively charged particles, are being smashed together. Now, there's atoms and molecules bouncing around in the air around us all the time. When two molecules of air in the room at room temperature and room pressure, pressure hit each other, they just bounce off like billiard balls. But in the temperatures and pressures at the center of the sun, something else can happen during a collision um, because the, uh, these things are being collided with such force that actually they can smash and stick together. They can fuse together. And two hydrogen nuclei fuse together to form a helium nucleus. And in the process, some of the mass of those nuclei is converted into energy in the form of electromagnetic radiation. And that's what you're seeing here. So the nuclei uh, stick together, and some of their energy, their mass energy, is liberated in the form of electromagnetic radiation, a photon. And that is basically where the energy of the sun comes from. Now, the photons are not much good to us if they stay in the center of the sun. So we have to get them out of the sun. These photons are traveling at the speed of light, uh, and they're traveling in, in random directions. Uh, and they're trying to get out. But the temperature, the pressure, the density of um, matter in the center of the sun is so large that they don't have a very easy journey. Unlike photons in the room, which can pass through the gas around us as if it wasn't there, the gas in the room is transparent to light. The gas in the center of the sun is so compressed it is not transparent, it's opaque. And those photons traveling at the speed of light are bouncing around. They don't get very far, perhaps a few centimeters before they hit something and they bounce off at a random direction. And so they're zigzagging around in the sun, trying to get out of the center. 
And even at the speed of light, it takes them about 170,000 years on average to get out of the core of the sun. Some get out quicker, some get out uh, more slowly. It's a random process, but on average, your average photon takes 170,000 years from its generation uh, to get out of the core. To get out of the rest of the sun, which is slightly less dense, slightly less of an obstacle, it still takes around a week. And then finally, when it gets to the surface, it has a free ride through space. And it then takes traveling at the speed of light uh, about 500 seconds, eight minutes to cross the 150 million kilometers between the Earth and the sun. And when it reaches us, that is sunshine. So when you stand in the sunshine and you see the light and you feel the warmth, the infrared radiation on your skin, those photons of light and, and infrared radiation uh, were generated at the, in the heart of the sun. On average, 170,000 years, one week and eight minutes ago. <laughs> which means that they started their journey when Homo sapiens, our species, had only just evolved on the plains of Africa. So sunshine is fossil energy from the center of the sun. And that's, of course, you know, what not only gives us our weather, it gives us our lovely suntan. Um, it's also, of course, what powers most of the ecosystems on Earth. Plants have learned to trap the sunlight. The only color of light they don't like is green. That's why they look green, because they reject green light. They bounce it out. Everything else they absorb, um, and they turn it into um, sugars, which they use for food. And of course, animals steal the food by eating the plants, and other animals steal the food from those animals by eating the animals. So whether you're a vegetarian or a carnivore, um, the energy you get from your food is solar energy. So you yourself are solar powered. You are a solar powered machine. And it all comes from these reactions in the center of a star 150 million kilometers away. So on a daily basis, when you go outside, when you um, look at the sun, when you feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, when you feel the weather around you, or when you eat, all of those processes are powered by energy from a star 150 million kilometers away. Now, here's the weather again. Um, there's something else in this picture which is very familiar to us here uh, on Earth and particularly familiar to us here in Britain. Uh, it's water. We're surrounded by water. Um, as living things, like all living things on Earth, we depend on water. Our biology runs on water. We use it as a solvent. It's a really useful substance. So water is something we're very familiar with. Um, and yet, there's something strange about water because from an astronomical point of view, it shouldn't be here. Here it is. We find it all around us on the Earth. We look out into space and we can see water molecules in all sorts of different contexts. Water is very common throughout the cosmos. Um, hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. Oxygen, much less common, but still one of the more common elements. So whenever you have hydrogen and oxygen together, they can combine to form H2O. Most of the water out there in space is either in the form of vapor or it's in the form of solid as ice. But if you get it in the right temperatures and pressures, it can, of course, be a liquid too. So water is out there. Um, and water is here on Earth. 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. If you've been watching Blue Planet 2 on, uh, on, on the, the BBC recently, you'll know that, you know, in many ways, the Earth is a water world. Water is such an important part of our environment. And yet, as I say, um, for astronomers, there's a big question mark there because the water shouldn't be here. We think we know how the Earth formed. We have a pretty good idea of how it formed and what conditions would have been like. And when it first formed, it would have been very hot. Uh, and that means um, 
Well, here, is, here is a diagram, in fact, an artist's impression of how the Earth probably formed. This is the solar system forming from a collapsing cloud of gas and dust in the centre. The densest part grabs most of that gas and dust and becomes the sun, begins those nuclear fusion reactions, begins to shine with light, uh, with heat, and the rest of the debris around it begins to condense to form the planets. Now, as the sun begins to switch on and begins to heat up, uh, conditions in those parts of the solar system begin to change. Um, and particularly where the Earth is, we're, quite, we're in a quite warm part of the solar system. The Earth is forming by things kind of crashing down, sticking together, building the Earth up. So the Earth itself is very hot. And also the sun, as it heats up, is driving volatile material away from the center of the solar system. So here's the sun forming. And that means that um, volatile materials, things like water, ammonia, uh, methane, these are driven away from the inner solar system. So there's a line beyond which it's cold enough for them to persist. But in the inner solar system, there isn't much of them around, uh, and so we expect the planets that form close to the sun to form without very much water. And indeed, when the Earth first formed, it probably didn't have very much water. So why doesn't the Earth look like this everywhere? Why is it 70% of the surface covered in water rather than 100% covered in deserts like this? Well, the clue lies perhaps above our heads. Here it is. This is the moon. Uh, and if we look at the moon through a telescope, something we've been able to do for the last 400 years or so, we can see as well as these dark and light areas that the surface of the moon is covered in craters. Covered in craters. Craters within craters, craters on top of craters. Big craters like this one, um, tens or hundreds of kilometers across. Smaller craters, even teeny-weeny craters. When the Apollo astronauts went, they saw that the surface was covered in tiny craters. And these craters are made by things hitting the moon. And we can actually date the craters. And we can see where most of the craters formed. Now, because the moon, like the Earth, formed from smaller objects crashing together, sticking together, and building up, it's no surprise that if we plot a graph of uh, time from the beginning of the solar system 4.6 years, billion years ago to the present, uh, the number of craters, most of them formed very early on. This was the very violent period when the moon and the Earth were still forming. So most of those craters come from early in the history of the solar system. But look what happens 3.9 billion years ago. There's another spike in cratering. And this seems to be quite an important period in the history of the solar system. Uh, and we think, we think we know what's going on. We think that this was when the planets had formed, but then the big outer planets started to rearrange themselves. Jupiter and Saturn moved inwards. Neptune and Uranus moved outward, outwards. And as they did that, they scattered a lot of the debris that was on the edge of the solar system and sent it tumbling in. And so we get this sort of spike of things crashing into the Earth and the Moon and the other inner planets. And these objects, we think, are what brought water to the parched early Earth. Uh, and so here's a lovely artist's impression of uh, things crashing into the Earth. And as they do so, they bring more and more water and gradually start to replenish the Earth's stocks again, making it into the watery world that we see today. Some lovely artist's impressions of that process. What were those objects? Well, we think that many of them may have been these. Uh, these um, objects from the edge of the solar system beyond the main um, planets, they're comets. They're from this very icy region, very cold on the edge of the solar system, where lots of these volatile materials were able to persist in a frozen form. And as Neptune and Uranus move further out, they scatter these objects and knock them inwards. Uh, and so perhaps this is where a lot of our water came from. 
Um, so they come from comets. As the comet comes into the inner solar system, those ices start to evaporate, forming the beautiful tail. And now, of course, we have close-up images. And you can see here Comet 67P, those pictures from uh, Rosetta, with the comet starting to evaporate as it reaches the sun uh, and, and the, uh, the evaporating ice and dust coming off here. So comets, very rich in water. They're a great candidate for bringing water to the Earth, except there's a problem with that. And that is that having studied comets close up with missions like Rosetta, we know that a lot of the water in the ice on comets is the wrong kind of water. It has the wrong hydrogen isotopes in it, um, and the wrong mix of hydrogen isotopes, uh, not like the water in our oceans. So although comets could have brought some of the water, they clearly can't have brought all of it. So there's still a big question mark. Where did the Earth's water come from? Well, we may have an answer. Still a question a question mark hanging over it, but we may have an answer. And this comes from NASA's Dawn mission, which has been studying asteroids in the asteroid belt. Two asteroids in particular, the giant asteroids uh, Vesta and Ceres. And uh, this is Ceres. This is the best image we had before Dawn in 2015. This is the Hubble Space Telescope. You can see Ceres is quite big. It's about 1,000 kilometers across, so big enough for gravity to have molded it into a spherical shape. But even Hubble couldn't really show much surface detail. So sort of you can see it's kind of brownish and with paler patches. This pale patch is something to watch, though. This is the image that Dawn has been sending back, um, the view of Ceres that we now have. You can see it's covered in craters as well. But look at this. In this crater, this dazzling white patch. And here's a close-up. Um, there's only two things this white patch could be. It's so bright, so reflective. Either it's ice or it's salt left by ice that has evaporated. And we think we know what's going on. Whatever crashed into Ceres, perhaps a smaller asteroid, and excavated this crater, dug down through the top layers of rock and dust to a layer of frozen water underneath. So we think that Ceres, an asteroid, not a comet, also is quite rich in water. And the interesting thing is there are indications that the water on asteroids could have a closer isotopic balance mix to the water here on Earth. So we're still learning about the origins of water in the solar system. But it seems as though our water could have two origins, the asteroid belt and uh, that cometary belt at the edge of the solar system. So the next time you have a shower or pour yourself a glass of water, remember that that extremely familiar substance actually has some very strange and exotic origins. It is an alien substance. And we wouldn't have known that without astronomy. Now, we can... We've, we've found out where water comes from, or at least we've got a pretty good idea of where water comes from. But we could ask that question about everything around us. Where does everything around us come from? Here is Bath. We've got, uh, we've got living things. We've got the atmosphere, oxygen and nitrogen. We've got uh, rocks and minerals, silicates, carbonates, all of these things. Um, the Earth itself, with its iron core, with its watery oceans, uh, with its living things, and our own bodies formed... Um, the calcium in our bones, the organic compounds, the carbon compounds that make up a lot of our bodies, the water, again, that makes up a lot of our bodies by mass. Where does all of that stuff come from? Um, we can look out into the cosmos. Here is the Orion Nebula, a huge cloud of gas and dust. And we can, we can see that these familiar compounds are also out there. Things like carbon, oxygen, silicon, they exist throughout the universe. Where did they come from? The simple answer would be, well, they came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Isn't that what created the universe and everything in it? Well, it is how the universe began, to the best of our knowledge. It's a very, uh, very uh, 
strong theory that matches all sorts of different lines of evidence. But from what we know about the Big Bang and how it must have happened, the Big Bang probably only created two of the chemical elements, hydrogen and helium, the two simplest chemical elements. Maybe a little bit of lithium, a little bit of beryllium, but mostly hydrogen and helium. You can't make planets, you can't make bodies out of hydrogen and helium. So something else must have happened to create all of the other elements around us. They weren't created in the Big Bang. Where did they come from? Um, because without them, we wouldn't have the Earth, we wouldn't have living things. Uh, we need some other mechanism for creating them. And we've already seen the answer inside the sun. It's nuclear fusion. It's that process of taking light elements, smashing them together, fusing them together to form heavy elements. That's what's going on in the sun, and that's what's going on in every star we can see in the sky. Uh, so the stars are element factories. They're taking lighter elements, and they are smashing them together, fusing them together to form heavier elements. And the byproduct, the waste product of that element generating process is starlight. That's what we're seeing is the, the waste product of that element generating process. And here's a cartoon of a star, perhaps a star a little bit more massive than the sun, so it's able to generate temperatures and pressures higher than our sun can generate, and that means it can generate a much larger range of uh, chemical elements. So it's, uh, it's uh, fusing hydrogen into helium, but also it's making nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, neon, magnesium, silicon, sulfur, nickel, and iron as you go down deeper and deeper. Those temperatures and pressures get greater, and you can create heavier and heavier elements. Our sun at the moment is burning hydrogen to form helium. Later in its life, it will burn uh, helium to form um, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, things like that, but then it will kind of stop at that stage. Larger, heavier stars can create heavier elements, and they can build things up all the way up to nickel and iron. So that's really great. We have a mechanism um, using nuclear physics to create heavier elements after that sort of wasteland of hydrogen and helium created by the Big Bang. But it's not much use if those elements stay inside stars. We can't make planets, we can't make human beings out of them if they stay inside the stars. So we need to get them out of the stars. How do we do that? Well, like people, stars do not live forever. They live for a very long time. Um, sometimes billions, tens of billions of years, or at least a few million years. But over the lifespan of the universe, there has been time for many generations of stars to form, live, and die. And when stars die, they do quite interesting things. This is what our sun will do in about five billion years' time when it reaches the end of its element-fusing uh, lifetime. It will swell up to about 100 times its current size. This is the sun now. This is the sun in five billion years. It will swell up to about 100 times its current size to become a red giant star. If you want to know where the Earth's orbit is, it's about here. So that's not good news for us uh, in five billion years' time. Um, but it is good news for uh, the future of the universe because once it's swollen up to a red giant, it will then do something else. It will do this. It will gradually puff away its outer layers into space, leaving just the core of the star as a white dwarf star. And the rest of the star, all of its outer layers, enriched with all of those new elements, will be blown away out into space. It's what we call a planetary nebula. That will spell the end of our solar system, really uh, destroy whatever is left after the red giant phase. But, um, and these are examples, these are real photographs, Hubble images of uh, stars older than the sun that have reached this, this part of their life. Um, the constellation is, although it will be the end of our solar system, it will look really, really pretty. 
And of course, all of those new elements cooked up inside the sun and the other stars are released back out into space as part of this process. And so here is the life cycle of a star forming from a cloud of gas and dust uh, and living its life swelling up and then releasing its contents back out into space. And stars like the sun, a little bit bigger than the sun, they can produce a lot of the elements at the moment. The sun is turning hydrogen into helium. It will produce some of these elements as well. Bigger stars will produce things uh, all the way up to uh, iron, perhaps a little bit of cobalt and nickel. Um, so that's great. But that doesn't solve all of our problems, because what about the rest of the periodic table? There are things down here um, that we need to make planets. We need to make human bodies. They are very important for biology. So things like um, copper and zinc, we need them for biology. We, you can't live without them. We need, um, we need to produce them somehow. So uh, if ordinary stars like the sun are not producing them, where does the rest of the periodic table come from? Well, for that, we have to look at the most uh, massive type of star of all. They're very rare, but they are enormous. And here is one of them, a blue supergiant star, 864 million miles across. Uh, if we put it in the middle of our solar system, replace the sun with a blue supergiant, it would fill the solar system to beyond the orbit of Jupiter. These stars are enormous. They contain a lot of material. Paradoxically, though, they have very short lives because they, um, they burn through um, their fuel 100,000 times, or, uh, sorry, 10,000 times faster than the sun, um, which is pretty impressive. So they only live for a few million years, and when they die, they don't die gently like the sun, they die catastrophically. They do this, they explode as a supernova. Uh, and that was an artist's impression. This is uh, two real photos of a supernova that took place in 1987, or at least we saw it in 1987. Uh, when the light finally reached us after thousands of years traveling through space. This is before and this is after. The star, for a few weeks or months, blazes millions of times brighter as it explodes uh, and its contents are blasted out into the cosmos. And in the force of that explosion, the energy, energy generated in the explosion allows heavier elements to be fused together and built up. And it's those supernova explosions that produce pretty much all of the elements heavier than iron, so things like gold, silver, platinum, copper, uh, uranium, all of these elements are produced in supernova explosions. So if you're wearing any jewelry made of gold or silver or platinum right now, every single atom in that item was made inside a supernova explosion. There's nowhere else it can come from. Well, actually, that's what I used to say, but just in the last few weeks, we've discovered that that's not entirely true. Supernovae are one of the ways you produce these things. There is another mechanism for producing them, and that's even more exotic and violent than a supernova. It's called a kilonova, and just in the last few weeks, we had an announcement that one had been detected. This happens when two really exotic objects, two neutron stars, super dense objects, collide together. Um, forming a kilonova, and when they do that, they generate a huge burst of gravitational waves, which is what uh, was detected by uh, LIGO and Virgo, the gravitational wave detectors in the Uni United States and Italy, um, and also a huge burst of light and gamma rays. And we think that these kilonovas actually may be even better at generating things like gold um, and platinum than supernova explosions, uh, because the neutron stars themselves are very rich in neutrons, and gold is a neutron-rich element. So it may actually be that your gold and platinum jewelry, um, most of it comes from 
these collisions between neutron stars. There's nowhere else, though, apart from supernovae and kilonovae, that these things can come from. They come from some of the most violent explosions in the universe. You can't make them any other way. So all of your jewellery is a relic of that. A lot of the iron in your blood also probably comes from explosions like this. That is where those components of our body come from. Well, whether it's a star like the sun dying gently or a supernova or a kilonova, the debris from those events enriched with all of those new heavy elements spreads out through space. Eventually, these clouds collide with each other and combine, and some of them begin to collapse under their own gravity, and they start to form new generations of stars. And this is one place where that's happening. Orion, uh, a lovely constellation that's becoming more and more prominent in our evening skies at this time of year. If you look for Orion's belt and then look down for his sword, the middle star of the sword, if you've got good eyesight, you can see even with your eyes that it's not really a star, it's a little fuzzy blob. And through a telescope, that's what it looks like, beautiful cloud of gas and dust in which new stars are collapsing from the gas and dust under gravity. Here are some great Hubble images of other places where this is happening. So this is the gas and dust debris of previous generations of stars now collapsing back under gravity to form new stars. Here's a cluster of stars that's just formed from its surrounding cocoon of gas and dust. And here, more gas and dust columns inside these dense tips of these columns. New stars are forming. This is an artist's impression of a new star that's just formed surrounded by a disk of gassy dust and debris. Uh, and inside that disk of dust and debris, um, those heavy elements are, are condensing, colliding to form planets. And eventually, this is where we think our own solar system came from. So our solar system formed from the debris of probably many, many previous generations of stars. That's where all the heavy elements came from that allow us to make the Earth and allow us to make living things. So the next time you're walking around the beautiful streets of Bath, remember something um, that uh, Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist, said back in the 1980s, we are all made of star stuff. That's not just poetry. It is literally scientifically true. Now, we kind of, um, we've learnt a lot about the universe just by studying it from afar. And I think that gives us a whole new perspective on our lives here on Earth. We can now look at a scene like this. This is another lovely Astronomy Photographer of the Year uh, winner from a couple of years ago by uh, Mark G from, uh, from Australia. And uh, we can now look out at the cosmos at a wonderful vista like this, the Milky Way, the Magellanic Clouds, and we can understand our relationship to that view in a way that previous generations were only groping towards an understanding of. We now know that um, our sun is just one of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We understand that pretty much every one of those stars has its own system of planets orbiting around it, um, which is something that we've only been able to say with any certainty in the last decade or so. But we now have very strong evidence that pretty much every star in the sky has its own system of planets around it. Perhaps not unexpected, but we now have very, very strong evidence that this is the case. We know. Um, that when we look at the Milky Way, these dark regions are not gaps where there are no stars, they are just clouds of dust, the debris of previous generations of dead stars that are now in the process of forming into new generations of stars. So we can observe directly the process that gave rise to us four and a half billion years ago. And we can even use telescopes to peer through these clouds of dust right towards the central region of our own galaxy, which is here in the constellation of Sagittarius. And we now know that at the centre of our galaxy, at the centre of every galaxy, is a supermassive black hole. 
weighing millions of times the mass of a typical star. And in fact, we and every other star in the Milky Way right now are in orbit around that black hole. So if you think you're sitting comfortably and you're sitting very still here in this lecture theatre here at the University of Bath, um, you may be sitting comfortably, but you're not sitting still. You are moving very rapidly, and this is something we've only come to understand over the last few hundred years. Uh, right now, you are moving because the Earth is rotating, and at our latitude, that means you're moving at several hundred kilometres per hour. You're also moving um, at uh, several kilometres per second uh, because the Earth is moving around the Sun. That, of course, was the, uh, the great revelation of the 17th century. Think of Galileo and Kepler people like that. And we're also moving because the sun and the solar system is moving at um, tens of kilometers per second around the black hole in the center of the galaxy. And it may be even, we think of black holes as being these very destructive forces. Nothing can escape from a black hole. That is true if you get too close. But from a distance, a black hole is just like any other object made of matter. It has gravity. It, the gravity influences things around it. Um, everything in the galaxy is orbiting around the black hole, but we're all perfectly safe. Um, and we have been doing so for billions and billions of years and will continue to do so for billions of years to come. So right now you are in orbit around a supermassive black hole, uh, traveling at um, tens of kilometers per second. It takes us about 220 million years to make one orbit of the, the galaxy. So the last time we were at this point in our orbit, the dinosaurs were just getting going. So that's one galactic year the dinosaurs have been and gone and we've arrived. What will be around the next time we do a loop around the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy? Who knows? Will we still be here? Maybe not. Um, but that's a perspective that astronomy has given us right now in our lives. It's also allowed us to not just look out and understand our place in the universe, but to look back at the Earth and have a new perspective on our place in the universe. We saw those amazing shots of Pluto at the beginning, uh, the New Horizons probe looking back uh, towards the sun uh, from beyond Pluto, a view that no human being had ever had before. A few years earlier, the Cassini probe um, at Saturn only ended its mission in September this year. Cassini also did a, a similar trick. It took this amazing picture of Saturn eclipsing the sun. Again, not a view we could ever get from the Earth because, of course, Saturn never comes between the Earth and the sun. The sun is here behind Saturn. Spectacular uh, backlighting of the ring system. Uh, and what's that there, shining way, way off in the distance? That is us. That is planet Earth. So if you were around, um, if you were alive in 2006, I think, when this picture was taken, you're in the picture. This is a portrait of the entire human race. Uh, and rather astonishing, it gives us a perspective on ourselves. Here we are, tiny, way, way off in the distance. Um, not really the main, the main event in this wonderful photo. Saturn is stealing the show, really gives us a perspective on our place in the universe. Um, but also, what a remarkable thing, that men and women from all over planet Earth came together. They um, put together the, uh, the scientific understanding of how the universe works that enabled them to build a machine to travel billions of kilometers across the solar system to study another world and to take a picture of where, where it had come from and send it back to us here on Earth. What an astonishing thing that we have been able to do. So I like to think that pictures like this, they tell us two things. They tell us that we are tiny, but we are not insignificant. 
we are one of the most extraordinary astronomical objects that we have discovered. In fact, the most complex natural object that we've discovered in all of the cosmos, it's not the Andromeda galaxy, it's not the supermassive black hole at the center of the universe, it's not even the amazingly complex rings of Saturn or the incredibly complicated nuclear fusion processes taking place at the center of the sun and all the other stars. The most complex natural object in the universe, as far as we know so far, is the human brain. So there are 60 of them in the room right now. 60 astronomical miracles sitting here, so complicated that each one of those objects is able to encompass within it a model of the universe itself, a model which I hope your model has grown and become a, a better match to the universe in the last uh, 50 minutes or so. But all of us have a model of the universe inside it, inside our heads. What an incredible thing. And I think it's only by being able to do things like this and being able to look back and see ourselves from that distance that we gain a true perspective on quite how remarkable we are. This tiny, tiny little globe is the only place in the cosmos that we know of where life is possible. It may be, and this is a very exciting maybe right now, we may be on the cusp of discovering many other places in the universe that have conditions for life and within the next couple of decades, perhaps even being able to tell whether life has formed there or not. That will be an astonishing discovery and it will change the way we think about our place in the universe again. But it will not let us off the hook of needing to protect this tiny, fragile planet. Because wherever we discover conditions suitable for life, these are not going to be a plan B, a get out of jail free card. They are not going to be anywhere that we can travel to any time soon, they're all going to be too far away. And probably most of them, even if they do have life and perhaps very complicated living ecosystems like the Earth, they are probably not going to have conditions that we could just step out onto the surface of and live in. They may have oxygen levels or temperatures or pressures or mixtures of gases or biochemistry, which is not conducive to Earth-type human life. So. We will learn a great deal about ourselves by studying alien life, by studying alien ecosystems. They may even help us to understand our own planet and how it works and learn how to take care of it better. But none of that is going to get us on the, off the hook of having to look after that little globe because that is the only place in the universe for the foreseeable future where we will be able to live. And I think that perspective shows us even more what an amazing place it is. So all of that study, all of that uh, amazing adventure, that learning about the cosmos around us, it all comes back to us here on Earth. And it makes us realize how special we are, how special our planet is, and why it's worth taking care of. And it's had so many other uh, effects as well. Because in trying to satisfy our curiosity, in trying to learn about the universe around us, we've had to develop so much technology to help us answer those questions. And that technology is not just useful for studying the cosmos. Uh, and here is just one example of spin-offs that we use in our everyday life. If you have one of these in your pocket, a smartphone, it has three things on it that were developed because of the curiosity of astronomers. Um, one of them is Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi, the basic systems behind Wi-Fi were developed by radio astronomers who wanted to link their radio telescopes together to, um, what have I done there? 
they wanted to link their telescopes together to um, allow them to see more. They're actually interested in trying to detect black holes. But that technology is now something that we use on our phones, on our laptops every day to uh, communicate and to access the internet. Another thing on your phone, which uh, comes from astronomy, is a little piece of software. Your phone uh, uses signals from the uh, Global Positioning Satellite System to locate itself. Uh, what would we do without GPS on our phones and in our cars now? In just a few years, we've become so dependent on it. But your phone is not a particularly powerful GPS receiver. Uh, the signals that it's getting are bouncing off buildings, or off, off landscape features. They're confused. Uh, and so this little piece of software helps to disentangle the weak GPS signals from all of the, the noise and confusion and interference around it. But that piece of software was originally designed by astronomers who were looking for uh, the very weak signals, again, of black holes in very noisy astronomical data. And the third thing that you have on your phone, which um, probably would, uh, would not be there without astronomers, is the digital camera. Uh, these are now ubiquitous since the 1990s, digital camera chips, but they were developed largely in the 70s and 80s um, by astronomers and other scientists who wanted a new, more sensitive way of recording imaging data in a way that would be useful to, for analysis on computers. They got to the end in the 1970s of what you could do with traditional glass plates and emulsions and photographic films. This technology allowed them to make full use of the potential of the new generation of telescopes uh, that was coming on stream. Uh, and because astronomers and other scientists pushed the technology forward, it became economies of scale, uh, commercially viable, and now we all have it on our phones and in our digital cameras. So astronomy has had an effect on our everyday lives in more ways than one. And there's some other advantages too to having all of those people being inspired to go out there and to learn about and to make discoveries about the universe. Because physicists and astrophysicists in particular, they learn a lot of useful skills in their training. Um, they learn problem solving. They learn how to weigh up evidence. Um, a useful skill that I would argue we could do with a lot more of in the world around us today. They learn coding and programming, again, a very useful skill that uh, I think uh, boys and girls should be learning in school. They learn teamwork. We think of uh, science as being, all these discoveries being made by lone geniuses. That's very rare. Most big discoveries in science are made by teams of people all working together, all using their own particular skills and talents uh, to, uh, to, to produce this great discovery as part of a team. You learn to be statistically literate, another skill that I think we could do with a lot more of in the world today. Um, you learn to spot patterns in data, to see the wood for the trees, if you like. You learn to be self-motivated. Although you work as part of a team, you are responsible for your, your particular part of that work, and every scientist has to motivate themselves. And something we never talk about when we talk about science, but hugely, hugely important. To be a scientist, you have to have imagination and you have to use creativity. Einstein did not come up with his general theory of relativity by sitting there mechanically writing out one equation after another like a robot. It took insight, imagination, and creativity for him to make the leap to understand how the universe actually worked. And so it always annoys me when people say, oh, I'm no good at science, I'm more of a creative person. All scientists are creative people as well. They have to be. And if you learn all of those skills, you can go on to do all sorts of interesting things. Of course, you can go on to be a researcher and make new discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. 
But you can also go into engineering and manufacturing. You can go into business and finance. The financial sector is a huge employer of astrophysicists because um, the, uh, the physics and the maths and the coding that you learn is uh, hugely useful for financial models. You can go into teaching, um, a very important and underrated career, I would argue. You can go into government. Again, I would like to see lots more uh, statistically literate, scientifically literate, mathematically literate people going into government. I think the world would be a much better place if that happened. Uh, you can go into health and medicine. Most of the new technology that we now use in medicine, think about MRI scanners, um, X-rays, uh, lasers, all of these things were developed originally by physicists. They were not developed to cure human diseases. They were developed by, because people were curious about the way the universe worked. And then we found they had applications in human health. And also, many people start off as scientists and go into the arts and creative industries. So. All of these things we have reason to be grateful for, the inspirational power of astronomy. I've only been able to touch tonight on some of the ways that we are directly connected in our everyday lives to the wider universe around us. Um, I got so excited about this and telling people about it, I thought I was going to write a magazine article and I ended up writing a book, which is available from all good bookshops. Um, so if you want to find out even more ways that your daily life is influenced by, connected to, uh, and, uh, and part of the wider cosmos. It's all in the pages of that book. But I will finish now um, and leave you with this, another spectacular picture from Insight Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition. Um, and I'm very happy to take any questions. Thank you very much. Marek, many thanks. That was a great uh, tour of what's out there and why it matters and why astronomers should run the world. Um, <laughs> Not all of them, but I, don't put me in charge, that's for sure. Uh, we have uh, a roving mic up there. Um, so, uh, questions? Yes, sir, you. Can I, ask, uh, can I ask a question which can only relatively recently be asked? How does dark matter fit into this? Well, I, I wish we could answer that. We, we've kind of known, had inklings of dark matter since the 1930s. It was really only in the 1970s that it became a, a topic of, of active research. And one of those moments, I think, um, being a scientist, any kind of scientist, of course, it's, it's really great uh, when you're proved right and when your ideas about the universe are supported by evidence and new observations. But it's almost as exciting, perhaps even more exciting, when you're proved wrong and when you realise that everything you thought you knew about the universe was not the whole story. And that's really what comes through with dark matter in the 1970s. For centuries, we thought that you know, what we saw through our telescopes was what was out there. And so it was rather a difficult pill, I think, to swallow in the 70s initially for astronomers to realise that a lot of what was out there was stuff that we couldn't see. And the first signs came from not looking and seeing this stuff using light. We can't see dark matter with light. Um, it, our guess, our best guess about how it, how it behaves is it doesn't give off light, it doesn't reflect light. Um, it doesn't absorb light. It doesn't basically interact with light in any of the ways that ordinary matter around us does. And there's a lot of it. In fact, 
our best guess now, it's not really a guess, but our, our best measurements uh, and, and theoretical predictions tell us that there's probably about five times as much dark matter as ordinary matter. But I can't answer your question because we don't know what it is. So we know how much of it there needs to be in order to explain all sorts of different aspects of the way the universe behaves. Uh, there are now multiple lines of evidence that all point to the existence of dark matter and all point to about the same amounts of dark matter. So there's, there's consistency there. So we, we know how much there is. We also know, we have a good idea of how it's distributed. So it's not clumped together into planets and solar systems and stars um, like ordinary matter. It seems to form huge diffuse clouds in which the galaxies of ordinary matter are sort of embedded like currents in a cake. We have some guesses about what kind of particles it might be, but these are particles that we haven't detected yet. And so this may be a question that is not answered by astronomers, but is answered by particle physicists. And one of the hopes about things like the Large Hadron Collider in CERN is that it may be able to generate particles of dark matter. And the way that we would know that CERN, that the Large Hadron Collider, had generated particles of dark matter is that we would see less coming out of a particle collision than went in. The dark matter particles would be created and we wouldn't be able to detect them. So you measure what goes into the collision and you measure what comes out of the collision and you'd see less coming out than went in and that would tell you that you've made some dark matter. Um, we don't know what it is. It's, it's in the room with us now. It always has been probably um, millions of dark matter particles passing through your thumbnail per second. So it's been with us for the whole of human history. Uh, but it's only really in the last few decades that we figured out that it's, it's all around us right now. And, and don't even get me started on dark energy. We only <laughs> discovered that existed in 1998, um, and we still have no idea what that is either. So basically, 96% of the universe we now know is made of stuff that we don't really know what it is. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Another question. Hi, thank you. Very interesting talk. Um, you're saying with the colliding neutron stars that is responsible for producing some of the heavier elements. Any evidence that the colliding uh, black holes that LIGO picked up, is that also producing the even heavier elements? Very good question. So, um, <coughs> supernova, so we think that neutron stars and black holes are both produced by supernovae. So these very massive stars at the end of their lives, they explode as a supernova. The outer layers are blasted out and all these new elements are generated and the core of the star collapses down either to form a neutron star or in extreme cases to form a black hole. And you're absolutely right, um, that recent detection was of two neutron stars colliding. They smashed together, huge explosion, even more heavy elements generated, gold, platinum, all of these things, fantastic. But the other LIGO detections have been of even more violent events, which is two black holes colliding. Now, the black holes are made of matter, um, but they are rather different because they contain so much matter, so condensed, that the matter is trapped within this, this region called an event horizon um, from which even light can't escape. So whatever is inside the black hole can't get out. And all the matter we think inside the black hole is crushed together into a essentially point of zero size, although it can't be. But, um, a tiny, tiny point at the centre of, of the black hole, right in the middle of this event horizon. So when the black holes merge, those two singularities, those two points of matter will merge together and a new event horizon will sort of be formed around them. So whatever happens inside there, it can't get out. 
I suppose it's possible because black holes often have material kind of swirling into them that when that collision happens, perhaps that, that material, some of that material is smacked together and perhaps some of that does interesting things. We've not been able to see that, to observe that in any detail. So these are truly stupendous collisions, but probably most of the action goes on inside those event horizons as the event horizons merge together and whatever happens inside is, is lost to us. So it could be amazing. Um, and maybe one day someone will go inside and watch it all happen, but they'll hmm. never be able to tell us what it's like. <laughs> so. Another question. Roger. Uh, getting away from black holes in the distant universe, coming back to our solar system, what part do you see human pe beings taking part in the exploration? An interesting question. So, of course, uh, nearly 50 years ago now, we sent... Uh, human beings to the moon. Twelve uh, American men walked on the surface of the moon, uh, and that's really been it uh, for, for the last 50 years. We've only been to low Earth orbit. Several hundred people from many, many nations around the world have spent time there. The International Space Station has been, um, you know, a tremendously successful venture. I think one of its successes, actually, which we don't often talk about, is that... Um, over the last 20 years, as, as it's being built, a huge collaboration, the most complicated machine ever constructed, and constructed by a consortium of countries which over those 20 years have been bickering and arguing and feuding with each other, either down here on Earth, but up there in orbit, they've, they've worked perfectly together and built this amazing thing. But we haven't gone further. Um, what's happened in the meantime is that we've got really good at building robots, uh, and we sent robots out into the solar system. And the great thing about robots is you don't have to protect them. You do have to protect them from radiation, but not to the same extent as people. They don't have to take air. They can survive in much more extreme temperatures. And you don't have to feed them or, or give them water. So they're able to go much more cheaply, much more easily to places that we would not be able to go to. And you don't have to bring them back. Because, of course, with people, there's always the return journey as well, which means that's twice the expense and twice the time. So we've got very good at building robots. We saw New Horizons, we saw Dawn, we saw Curiosity. Um, we've sent robots to the surface of Venus, a very hostile environment, to the surface of Titan. One of our robots has now left the solar system, and, and three or four others will do the same over the next decade or so. So we've done amazing jobs with robots. But there are all sorts of reasons why I think we will start to send human beings further out. Some people argue that there are just things that robots can't do. Um, human beings are much more mentally flexible and also physically more flexible in some ways uh, and making snap decisions on the spot. Um, that argument may go away as our robotic technology and our artificial intelligence develops. But I think there's also something about being human. We want to see human beings up there. It's all very well to see a, a weather satellite in orbit, but seeing Tim Peake in orbit um, that gives us a, a very different feeling. Uh, and I think it's part of our urge to go out there and explore. So I think we will see human beings going out into space. Whether you know, there are all sorts of discussions going on at the moment, serious discussions in space agencies, are we going to send people back to the moon? Are we going to send people to an asteroid? Or are we just going to send people to Mars? Um, there are good arguments for all of those things. I think one of those things will happen in the next couple of decades. And the exciting thing for me is that it's not going to be me that goes. It's going to be kids who are in school studying science, engineering, 
right now who are going to be the ones who are the first person to stand on Mars. So I, I think it's probably fair to say that the first human being to stand on Mars may already be alive. That's a really exciting thing to think about. And they're probably in school right now, which is why teachers are so important and why people like Tim Peake are so important, because that's the kind of inspiration that's going to get these people. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a girl or boy studying school, science in school right now who's going to be the first person on Mars. And that, I think, is a really amazing thing to think. And it will probably happen in my lifetime, but I won't, it, won't, it won't be me. <laughs> Another question. I'm wondering how evenly spread the uh, heavy elements are around the universe or around our galaxy in different star-forming regions. Are there some which are very poor in heavy elements? It's a good, it's a good question, and it's, um, there, there is variety, and of course it will depend on the exact sort of mix of supernovae and kilonovae that have happened in that region. Certainly, if you, um, if you take a slice from the centre of our galaxy out to the edge, the centre of the galaxy where there are many, many more stars, um, that's much richer in heavy elements. And as you go further out, um, you get much, much poorer. The stars thin. There have been fewer generations of stars, uh, and the material is just more thinly spread. And so it may actually be um, that you can't get life-bearing planets around every star in the galaxy. Um, it may be that stars further out, there just aren't enough heavy elements around yet in the universe to form the kind of solar systems that we, we need. It may be that closer to the centre of the galaxy, um, that's also inhospitable to life for other reasons. There are many, many more stars. Um, they're much more closely packed together. And that means that actually, um, if you're on a planet around one of those stars, you're going to be bathed with very harsh radiation, particularly if some of those stars go supernova nearby. So it may be that we live in a, a quite a nice kind of band of the galaxy where you've got the right, um, the right mix of heavy elements to form planets, to form life, but not too many stars in the sky to have all of this nasty radiation around. So again, there are all of these questions that we're only really just starting to get to grips with, but we may start to answer over the coming years. But yes, there is a, um, all, all regions of the galaxy are not equally endowed with, with heavy elements. Uh, we can do really interesting things now. Um, there are some scientists who are trying to figure out exactly how many supernovae um, were responsible for the elements in our solar system. Uh, and it, it's probably a handful of supernovae that went off and produced the, the heavy elements that we have now. We can, we can even work out when these supernovae must have happened, how long before the solar system formed, because some of the heaviest elements are radioactive. So they decay with time. And from the ratios of the parent radioactive elements and the daughter radioactive elements, we can tell with a pretty high degree of confidence when those first radioactive elements were generated in a supernova explosion. So the solar system's about four and a half billion years old. And I think um, the kind of numbers I've heard people banding around are sort of six, seven billion years for the supernovae that really kind of triggered star formation in our corner of the universe. So really cool stuff that people are able to do. One more question. One more, from the back. <clears throat> One of the things I would like to see in my lifetime is Betelgeuse become a supernova. It is going to happen soon, <laughs> isn't it? 
So, yes, uh, Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, as some people like to call it, the, uh, the, the very bright reddish star in the shoulder of Orion. This is, a, this is a, a red giant star, much more massive than the sun, so it will die as a supernova explosion. Um, and as far as we can tell, it could go off at any time. And that means, in fact, it could already have gone off because it mm -hmm. is, I think, about 700 light years away from us. And that means that if it's gone off at any time in the last 700 years, the, the light from the explosion will not have reached us yet, so we won't know about it. So it could already have exploded, um, or it could last for another few million years. We can't tell. That's the level of, of uncertainty that we have. If it does explode, um, at that distance, we will be safe. Um, there will be a, a burst of gamma rays, which um, will, will have an effect on our atmosphere. It could, you know, it can slightly damage some of the ozone in the atmosphere, but not to any, any worrying degree. Um, but it will, be, it will be bright for months. It will be bright enough to be seen in the daytime sky. And then, of course, as it fades over several months, the constellation of Orion will never look the same again. So it would be spectacular. I, like you, I'd quite like to see it, but I think I would also miss it because it, that very familiar constellation is going to be changed forever once it, once it goes off. But it may not happen for millions of years, or it could already have happened. <laughs> That's great. That's astronomy for you. Right, that was a tremendous uh, tour of what's out there and what's, uh, what, what can be seen and why it matters for us. And I sometimes think, imagine if William Herschel had been in the audience, seeing those pictures and listening to these stories and, trying and, and seeing what the ideas he had and the things he could say faintly, and how much more we could see only a couple hundred years later. It's really I, tremendously I exciting stuff. I think he would be stuff. so excited. He uh, would be. I mean, I would love to spend an evening with him and just, you know, yeah. because he was, he was one of the people at the beginning of that process yeah. using science and what we knew of, of how physics and chemistry worked here on Earth to try to infer what was going on yeah. out there in space. And, you know, he, he made that tremendous discovery of a, of a new planet. Yeah. No one had discovered a planet before because all of the other planets were visible to the naked eye and had been for the whole of human history. Yeah. Um, that's a tremendous figure. And he was a musician before he was an astronomer. And I think that sense of um, harmony I'm sure he learned a lot of his maths, actually his sense of mathematics from music. Mm. That's why he found astronomy quite easy to get into. Um, so he was this sort of real kind of renaissance figure as well. And again, I think um, I'd like us to, to move science back into that, that arena of, of culture. It is a human, mm. a cultural activity. And it, it tells us something fundamental about who we are and what it means to be alive, which is what the arts do as well. And they should yeah. sit side by side and they should talk to each other, just as they would have done in Herschel's house where they would have been talking about music and That's astronomy indeed it it, would. over dinner. You know, what an amazing place to be. Indeed it would. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.